For some time now, we've been looking at the question, why is it so difficult to believe in today's world? And while I could have chosen any number of psalms for our text, Psalm 33 is what I've chosen. Uh, Listen as I read. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp and make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches over all who live on earth. Or he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse has a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This weekend, this time of the year, is a marker for me in a number of ways, for a number of reasons. It was 37 years ago, uh, last Thursday, that Dan and Lonnie and Jason, who was not quite two years old, along with a group of us who had been meeting in a house, a house church, came here to be a part of the Berean Baptist Church. 37 years. By God's grace, he has sustained us and kept us and brought different ones at different times to be a part of the church on Melrose. 23 years ago today, uh, we had a visitor uh, who came to our church for the first time. Um, her name was Gia Silverio. And that's when I met Gia. So this weekend, along with her birthday, other things, is just for me a time of great thanksgiving. Because of that and things I've been reading this past week, it's caused me to think about gifts which come from God who is the one who gives. This is something we've discussed in this series already. Uh, Esther Lightcap Meek has mentioned in her book, A Little Manual for Knowing, that knowing is a pilgrimage, knowing is a pilgrimage together, and knowing is a gift. Begins by recognizing the character or the nature of reality. If we think of creation and reality as a gift, then it should help us as we seek to come to know what it is that God has done, what he is doing in creation. How we respond to a gift should be highly personal. 
what we should keep in mind is that our knowledge as information orientation takes us away from that. We don't see reality as a gift. We see reality in terms of data or information. So we've seen the world has become disenchanted. It is impersonal. Something to be studied, dissected, analyzed. But creation is in fact a gift from the creator. And love is at the core of all things. And yet I am convinced that one of the things that makes it hard to believe in today's world is the downplaying or reducing, reduction, the ignoring or the rejection of the place of gift. We just do not think in terms of gift. We do not think of reality or creation as gift. And so with this reduction, this rejection, perhaps just carelessness, comes ingratitude. I am not saying, and this is not to say, that ingratitude is a modern problem. C.S. Lewis said, a definition of man is the ungrateful biped. And Martin Luther wrote, nothing ages so quickly as gratitude. I think by nature, as sinners, as fallen people, we tend to fall short in the area of gratitude. In the series on creation, uh, I mentioned a book by Mark Mitchell entitled The Politics of Gratitude. If we begin to grasp what it means to be a creature, to be a part of creation, Mitchell tells us, if we see that we as creatures are contingent and dependent, if we see that as creatures we owe debts to others, both living and dead, then we will recognize that we should have the disposition of gratitude. And yet, as Mitchell puts it, we tend to be an ungrateful lot. We need to recognize that gratitude is a disposition toward the world. It reminds us that we are not alone, that we are not solitary creatures, owing nothing to anyone. Gratitude points that we are in fact dependent. We need others. When our thoughts are characterized by gratitude, we tend not to be inward but outward. We think of those who have done things for this for us and we want to show gratitude. Gratitude, as Mitchell puts it, breaks us out of the prison of self-satisfaction and self-concern, which is a constant temptation to think that it's all about me. But gratitude is not simply a disposition. It is a disposition that is the result of goodness. Unlike friendliness, if you wish, or generosity, which we can be and do regardless of how the other person responds, gratitude requires the action of someone else, that someone does something and then we respond with gratitude. Mitchell is exactly right. But I want to come at this from a different direction, a different angle. I want to suggest to you today something to to think about, and that is that modern ingratitude is unique in that it fails to recognize gift. That is, it is not as though modern people, both believers and unbelievers, see gift and refuse to give thanks, or they are simply careless, they forget to give thanks. I don't think that's the problem. The problem is we do not see reality as gift. We just don't. There are a number of reasons for this, and 
that could be a series in itself. I'll just mention a couple of things. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, reality is now disenchanted. Something to be dissected, analyzed, something to be studied. It's material for our study and our investigation, not a gift. Remember reading about uh, this disposition that someone who's in the hospital who is given flowers, that rather than recognizing the flowers as a wonderful gift, they begin to say, well, I wonder what species, I wonder what genus that is, I wonder what kind of flower that is, rather than simply accepting it as a gift and being grateful. In the modern world, I think another reason why we are uniquely ungrateful and here I'm speaking more about believers than unbelievers, we're simply not sure about the creator. And this is sort of a chicken and egg problem. Have moderns taken a different view of reality because they have a different view of God, a suspicious view of God? Or do they have a different view of God because they have a different view of reality? In his book, Music, Modernity, and God, Essays and Listening, Jeremy Begbie, in different essays, I think, it's a collection of eight essays. I think in every single one brings up the issue of gift. The physical world is not seen today as a prior gift, as something that is here before us. Many people imagine that what we call reality or nature is in fact the result of arbitrary will rather than the creation of a benevolent and loving God. And if it's simply arbitrary the result of arbitrary chance, then why should we see it as a gift? Why should we be grateful? However, and this is the quote, if we see creation as a gift from a God of uncontainable generosity, who gives us a gift for us to interact with vigorously, then gratitude would seem to be appropriate. Do we believe that God is the giver of all, that the creature is for good. Again, if we do, then gratitude would seem to be appropriate. Again, I agree with Begbie, I agree with Mitchell, but I think there's something deeper than that. It's a more fundamental problem for us as believers in the modern and postmodern world. And the problem is this. Whatever the topic is, whether it be moral, economic, political, artistic, you name it, that in any discussion or any conversation... Many Christians begin the conversation within the context of a fallen world. And then they move on to analysis. And then finally to the solution. And as we've, I've seen, said this before, I'm convinced that as God's people, we are to think in terms of three categories. Creation, fall, and redemption. That is, how was something when God originally created it? Secondly, how was it affected by the fall? How does it exist in that context? And lastly, how is the process of redemption affecting this? And as we go toward the new creation, what the project has always been geared toward, what is going to happen? What is it supposed to do? I'm convinced that this paradigm is the way that we are to think as God's people. We saw this in the Here It Is to Review some years back. We saw this in the series on money. I found myself increasingly frustrated, and I would say by writers on both the left and the right in the Christian world, when it came to the area of money. And that is that very few of them begin with creation. They all begin within the context of the fall, 
And because they do so, then they end up going in different directions than I think what Scripture intends. Ron Sider's very famous book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Moving from Affluence to Generosity, uh, was published more than 25 years ago. And when it was republished for its 25th anniversary, in spite of urging from critics, constant urging from critics, Sider says nothing about creation. His critics said, listen, you've got to talk about creation. And he failed to do so. He affirmed the goodness of creation, but he presents no theology or integrated Christian view of creation and culture as a framework for his ethics. He doesn't begin with, in the beginning God created the world. He begins in a fallen world and from there develops his Christian theology with regard to money. Craig Bloomberg, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions, begins by looking at Israel in the wilderness with manna and sees manna as the paradigm that we are to follow as Christians. No reference whatsoever to creation. And as I said, I think this is the way it is with most conversations that Christians have today, most discussions. People see the fallen world as the way things are, the way God made things, rather than a corruption of God's good creation. And in the process, there is a diminishing of God as creator. Certainly God is the good creator, because if he's the good creator, why is everything so messed up? And God is the perfect creator. Please understand me. Even in its fallen state, creation and reality is a gift from the giver of all good gifts. But something has gone wrong. That is obvious. We need to recognize in our discussions that if we do not begin with creation, if there is no creation, then in reality there is no fall. If you do not have perfection, then you cannot talk about imperfection. And ultimately there can be no redemption. You'd have to call it something else. Uh, the Christian view of, of finances or whatever is, is geared towards something else, but it's not redemption because redemption, as we saw in the series on creation, is tied to creation. But if you don't start here, then you, and you start here in the middle, then you're just going to sort of go off on your own. Redemption does not only mean being saved or being delivered or rescued, it means recovering. That is a returning of sorts to what was originally intended. In the biblical paradigm, we start with creation. Again, we saw this in the recent series on creation, which is not the end of things. It is the beginning of a project. Creation is pointing toward new creation. This has been God's intention all along. But the project is derailed because of Adam's sin, and creation is then defaced. It is marred. It is unsound. It is broken down. In the words of Bob Dylan, everything is broken. And in Jesus Christ, we see, we hear redemption. The beginning of redemption that leads to the new creation. But if we begin our conversations in a fallen world, what is to guide us? How do we know what is the right path to take? Where are we to go? What is right? And what is the telos or the goal of all things? If we have no sense of what was originally intended, if we have no sense of what it's all headed toward, then we're left to our own devices to decide what is correct. 
And we should not be surprised if oftentimes Christians take the paths established by unbelievers. As an example, in the matter of money, we find Christians following models from the left and the right rather than one that has its roots in creation. Oh, sure, the Bible, they use the Bible, Bible verses to support their position. Bloomberg uses, in fact, uh, manna as the paradigm to follow. But as Shakespeare said in The Merchant of Venice, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose, an evil soul producing holy witness. I'm not saying that these people are evil. They are, in fact, our brothers and sisters. But if they do not, if we do not start with creation, then we will find ourselves going down the wrong path. So I said at the beginning of the sermon, my thoughts went in this direction in part because of my reading. A recent book has come out by a political science professor, David Koizas, entitled, We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God. And he makes the argument, quite correctly in my opinion, that authority is not something that is needed because of the fall. That is, I think, what many Christians might think. Authority cannot be identified with mere power. It is not to be played against freedom. It is not a mere social construction. You may remember that we've seen in this series that, in fact, freedom is the modern value par excellence, and therefore authority is something that is, if you wish, deep, people are deeply suspicious of and even reject. Why does authority and its exercise have such a bad name in our world today, in the modern and postmodern age? Well, based on a man that he followed, uh, Yves uh, Simon, has at least four reasons. The first is it seems to stand in conflict with justice. That we, we tend to see this dichotomy of authoritarianism and justice. Secondly, it seems to be in opposition or contrast. It conflicts with spontaneity. That human life can't be spontaneous and vital because authority somehow artificially inhibits it. I can't be myself. I want to be outside the box, and authority is, if you wish, the box. Thirdly, the imposition of authority is reputed to curtail the search for truth. And remember, as we've seen, the truth will set you free, and free is the mod- freedom is the modern value. So authority is contrary to that, and therefore it is rejected. And lastly, it seems that authority is often connected to human arbitrariness. Now, if as a Christian you start a conversation about authority in the context of a fallen world, then one or more of these things may sound very correct to you. You're like, that's right. That's why we should be suspicious of authority. But what if we begin the conversation in creation and not in a fallen world? Koizis writes this at the end of his introduction. Authority, we shall argue, is one of God's good gifts, making life possible in this world which he created, redeemed, and sustained by his grace. We can no more imagine life without authority than we can conceive of it without sunshine, rain, or the fertility of the soil. More to the point, given that authority is intimately connected to the very image of God, authority is integral 
or as integral to human life as humanity itself. The deprecation of authority amounts to a deprecation of humanity. By contrast, the redemption of humanity entails, at least in principle, the redemption of authority in its manifestations. Now, one might disagree with Coises' conclusions, but I'm convinced he begins the conversation in the right place. He sees it as one of God's good gifts, not as something we had to come up with because of sin, because of a fallen world. Our text is Psalm 33. It issues a call to worship and to praise. And it begins with the reality of God as the creator. The psalmist then goes on to deal with the various difficulties of life in that light. You find this time and time again in the Psalms, that there is praise because God is the creator. And yes, there are difficulties. There are bad people out there. There are people who are trying to harm the psalmist. But the psalmist begins with the reality that God is the one who made the world and he sustains it. As people in this place and this time, we face various challenges to believing. It is more difficult to believe today, I'm convinced, than it was 10 years ago, than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And one of those reasons is ingratitude in that we do not see creation as gift. Ingratitude is part of the human condition since Adam and Eve sinned. But we face a unique challenge in that we no longer see this as gift. Creation is not seen as gift, something given by the creator. That means if we begin our conversations, if our thoughts begin in the faulty framework of a fallen world, what we just read in Psalm 33 will sound rather quaint to us. I'm reminded of a particular story. Dick Kies tells this in one of his uh, essays. I'm, in, I'm depending on God for the future, I once said to a friend. Oh, I see, she responded, you need the security that comes from believing that. What is involved in that reply? On the surface, it is only a bit condescending. At a deeper level, it casually eliminated a whole category of human knowledge, the possibility of true knowledge of God who has been emptied and reduced to compensations for psychological security. And I would add, yes, and this person had no sense of creation as gift, gift from the creator. As God's people, we must affirm, we must declare the goodness of God's gifts. But for many of us, we need to be reminded. We need to remind ourselves. We need to remind one another that, in fact, God is the giver of all good gifts. Now, if you would turn to Colossians chapter 1. As we come to a close here, Paul writes to the Colossians, the church in Colossae, as far as we know, a church that he never visited. So he's writing to brothers and sisters that he does not know. And yet in this first chapter, as he sort of opens his thinking to them, we find tremendous truths, beginning in verse number 15. And what I would like you to do as I read this is to think in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. When we think of gift, we should think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not simply him coming to earth. There is that, and I'm not discounting that at all. But let's go back to creation, as he is the one who is before all things, and he is the one who created all things. He is the one who sustains all things. And in the midst of a fallen world, he comes into the world to redeem it, to reconcile all things back to the Creator. It's pointing toward the new creation. Jesus Christ is God's gift. But if, in fact, gift is no longer a part of our thinking, if it's no, part, no longer part of our mental vocabulary, either in our thinking or even in our praying, then much is lost. And our conversations don't begin in the right place. They don't have the right framework. They don't begin with God as the creator. Through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, creating all things. They begin in the midst of a messed up world. And we're trying to figure out where to go from here. Rather than having a sense that in redemption, Christ is restoring things, reconciling all things to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's gift to us. His creation is his gift to us. Sometimes it's easier to think about gifts. With babies coming along. They're wonderful gifts. But it needs to be a part of our everyday mental life. Of our prayers. Of our thinking. Of our conversations that what we have has been given to us by God, the giver of all good gifts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we take so many things for granted, the many things you have given us, your creation, created by your Son, whom you sent into the world and who has given us a taste of the new creation after his resurrection pointing us ahead to the culmination of all things we confess that sometimes we get tired of saying thank you we don't seem to tire of your gifts but we get tired of saying thank you and I think perhaps It is the weakness of our thinking, the weakness of our faith in seeing things as gift. How good you are to us 
day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And may we come to see that in being grateful, our faith is strengthened. And as difficult as it may be to believe in today's world, it becomes less so when we are grateful. We are thankful that you've brought us here together today to worship you. That Leah and Tali are with us. Watch over them as they travel. For Tom, as he'll be away, keep him safe. We pray for Dave and Martin during this very difficult time. May they have a sense of your presence. and May you draw them to yourself. Now I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.